0: Greetings. My name is Anna Troy, but in the Society of Creative Anachronism, I am known as the Honorable Lady Anna de Bix. Welcome to Conversations with Creative Anachronists, where you can talk about your passions within the SCA. In this premiere episode, I will be talking to Her Excellency Mistress Alaydis van about fabulous fashions, how silly hats can inspire, and why there is a problem if you have a larger bosom size. Welcome, Eva Andersson, also known as Her Excellency Mistress Aladis van Vilvorde. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, well, I'm not actually Belgian, but it should be, yeah,
1: it's Villvorde. It's a little, little, well... Not so much as a town, as a village outside of Brussels that I once spent a week for a youth environmental conference. So when I was looking for my name, I decided, well, why not? Feel for it. It's a nice place.
0: And it's a, actually a classical medieval le Renaissance type of name that you have your last name from somewhere your persona comes from or that y- you came from. If you travel.
1: Exactly. The thing is, uh, Vilforden was in the 15th century. It was one of the small textile centers. So it did exist at this time. It's actually known already from the 7th century as Vilforden in uh, late Roman sources. But the thing is, when I started in the SCA, I always thought, oh, I'm Flemish. I'm doing this. And I mean, this was 1993. I have changed since this. Nowadays, I'm more like, yeah, probably Swedish. Yeah, still keeping this name, probably living on my farm or rather, you know, manor. But I mean, it isn't that important. If you don't want it to be important, it isn't that important.
0: No, I mean, it's always that you start off with a persona and sometimes you change it. I've heard various variations of how you do that. uh, one guy took and had a uh, wake for his old persona name. So everybody would know not to call him that anymore.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I thought about that too. I mean, changing when I more and more became sort of Nordic, sort of something like that. But I think that would be tying me down because I'm in mean this for the clothing, for the research about the clothing, the textiles. And I want to be able to do any time period if I want to do it. I'm always doing European. I mean, I moved between the 13th century and the 16th century and back to the 12th century. So I just have the name and a sort of general idea of who she is. For other people, it's really important to have this background story. And then, of course, I can see the point of having a wake for your old name when you change yourself but it's more like a lady she's everywhere
0: (laughs) so you even have a doctorate in medieval costuming or medieval clothing from sweden when did it start your interest was it when you started in the sca or before that I always wanted to be a historian. I mean, my PhD
1: is in history as such, though my subject was medieval clothing. I mean, I was nine years old when I wanted to become an archaeologist because I didn't really know the difference between an archaeologist and a historian. I just wanted to do old time things. Then I started to become a teacher and history got more and more interesting. I hadn't yet met the SEA then, though if I had known about it earlier, I would have joined, but I didn't know about it. And I think I've always would have become an historian. But if it hadn't been for the SCA, I think my subject would have been like the labor movement of the 19th century or something like that. It is the SCA that got me into textiles in the Middle Ages.
0: Costuming history would have been poorer if you'd gone over to doing <laughs> labor history instead. Costuming is your main interest, but what other types of arts and science interests do you uh, have? I
1: do calligraphy and I do illumination. I'm more interested in the illumination part of it. You do need to do the calligraphy too if you want to make scrolls. So I make both of them. I do some sort of, I do paint. I mean, interior decoration, painting my boxes and chests and my bed and things like that. I'm rather interested in the complete impression, not of a specific time. I'm not doing... Historical reenactment of the autumn of 1299, or something like that. But you know, the general medieval feeling of the whole I- impression of it, I like that a lot. I'm interested in that. I also like dancing. I'm not particularly good at it, but I do it. I like singing medieval music. I play the recorder rather badly. I like medieval cooking. <laughs> I've started doing archery. And I'm really, really fond of watching heavy
0: fighting. I don't know if that would be considered an arts or a science. You do have some interest in medieval literature, don't you? I remember you having some lecture about a knight and the escapades that he had. Oh yeah,
1: that was probably the one uh, when I was reading aloud from Tirant LeBlanc, 15th century Catalan story, which is very bawdy. Yes, I'm very interested in medieval literature. I mean, I think this comes as part of the whole thing. If I want to understand a medieval person, I also had to figure out what kind of stories did I like? What kind of music did I like? What kind of games did they play? I do play some medieval board games, all these things. I'm really interested in the whole experience of medieval culture.
0: So how do you choose which time period to focus on? Do you get inspired by the internet? Do you have any favorite sources that you go to? Generally, I would say the headwear.
1: If it has silly headwear, I will like it. I'm I'm not really joking, this is actually true, I do have a tendency to go for the silly headwear. When I started, you know, we didn't really have the internet. The internet did exist, but nobody I knew was on the internet. So what we did have was the books you could get from the library and the university library. So I did a lot of my research then. And then, of course, I have my own primary research on written sources in Latin and old Norwegian and things like that. That also inspires me. When I read a document about something that was owned by somebody in Norway or Sweden, I go, hey, I want that too. So that is always an inspiration. But these days, I'm trying to be modern, but I haven't really got into watching costuming YouTube, YouTube videos. I've just started being active on Instagram or a half a year ago or something, which is interesting.
0: And I will put a link to your Instagram in the show but notes. When I
1: started doing things on the internet, the place to be was LiveJournal. That's where all the costuming people were. In the SCA and outside the SCA. And I still have a lot of friends that I got through LiveJournal. I have moved over to DreamWith, like a lot of people did. It is something. Maybe I'm older. Maybe it's because I'm exhausted. But it takes too much energy to actually produce that much text. These days, I'm mostly relying on, uh, on images. And I try to keep my costuming blog going. And I am on Facebook. But I do have a problem with, uh, with other media right now.
0: I can definitely recommend your blog, Eva's historical costuming blog. It's been going for how many years now? A
1: decade or more? Well, the webpage, which actually is the beginning of it, started in 2000. And so a lot of the material has actually moved out over from that one. So yes, it's about 20 years now. But the blog is only since, I don't know, eight years
0: maybe? Don't really know. Only. Only eight years. I go and look at it sometimes to get inspired, especially when I was looking at my 13th century interest. With all the different projects that you've had, is there anyone that stands out in any way for you that you thought, oh, thank God I finished, or this was so interesting. I've learned so much I tend
1: it. to be interested in everything. That's a, That's a start. I think that's why I do things also. I would say... Well, I have this really weird Genoese outfit that I made three years ago, maybe. It's uh, from brocade and it has the, the waist seam is right atop the bust. It's on my blog.
0: It looks very Regency.
1: Yes, it does. Except that in the Regency, at least it's below the bust. This is really straight on top of the boobs. It doesn't look pretty by any modern sense, but I love it. I really like finding something that people don't do or that you haven't noticed before and just go hey, this is interesting. I've never seen this in all these years and I want to do that. So that's one favorite. I also think I did sort of reproduction of, well, a quilted shift actually that used to belong to Blessed Isabel of France. And I really liked quilting, hand quilting. I mean, I didn't think I would. I think I would think it was boring, but now I'm feeling, I sort of have an urge to quilt more stuff. But I mean, you love everything you do, I think, in a way.
0: Do you find it hard to keep your interest going now that you've done so many different styles? Or do you have a principle that once you've started something, you'll f- you will With finish it? With very few
1: exceptions, I always finish what I have started. I think that's just the way I am. I start something and, I feel, and I'm rather quick also in finishing them. So I don't have that. I don't have the problem, you know, you see all the things, I want to make all of them, and then you never finish any of them. I tend to make a lot of things, but... No, it is hard to keep up the interest right now because we don't have anywhere to wear our clothing and anything like that. But on the other hand, I feel that that's where the Internet comes in, because I can at least show the things I have done to other people who also do costumes and they can go, ooh,
0: and ah, and oh, that's weird. And then also you get feedback in a way that you couldn't before. If you made something, if you didn't live in a large shire that had some kind of sewing group or such, then you did as best as you can and you brought it to an event. And if you were lucky, you were, you'd were you be able to get some constructive criticism. Now you can get, if you really want to put up a lot of photos, you, you can get advice for almost every step of the way. And then there's things that uh, you you need extra people for anyway, like fitting, which is one of the reasons I have kind of hard with late period garb. It's especially if your body isn't completely symmetrical. If fitting yourself is very hard. Oh, yes. I have a very weird body. I have two narrow shoulders for my very
1: big bust. And then my rib cage is really like, it's like a coat. I mean, it's so much wider in the lower rib cage than in the upper one, and that's Partly because when I was pregnant, I have arthritis, which means I have a constant inflammation in my rib cage, which makes it very stiff. It has no, no elasticity. But when you're pregnant, of course, I mean, the baby or the babies in my case, they push it out. So it's really, really, really like a big cone, much narrower at the top. So, I mean, the only reason I can actually wear late period garb with a corset and look normal is because I fill up the gap with lots of boob because otherwise I would just look, you know, going (laughs) narrow at the top, then wide at the rib cage and then narrow at the waist. So I fill it up with flesh, but it is difficult. And I mean, like you, I'm very fond of the 13th century and the early 14th century, because not only can you fit it yourself, once you have made a pattern, you can just use the same pattern. You can gain 20 kilos, you can lose 20 kilos, you can get pregnant, you can stop being
0: pregnant, and you can still wear the same clothes. And if you go up, it, it just goes, it just turns into 14th century. That is true. But I mean, I, I do lots
1: of mid-13th and early 14th century because I think it's so beautiful with the flowing lines. It is also culturally a very interesting period. You have lots of the courtly literature, some mm-hmm. very good music, and it's before the Black Plague, which I, doesn't th- which I don't think is so interesting. So yeah, I really like the high Middle Ages
0: I have some bizarro projects going on. One that is on hold. You know about Sartor, yeah, yeah. the the place for brocade and such. And it had this brocade. I wanted to really make something. And then I finally figured out that there were patterned Blios yes. with exactly the right patterns. And then as I had enough money, they didn't have, it was like one meter oh, too Oh, God. The amount of fabric they had. But... And this is, Sarto is really good at this. I asked them if they had new stuff on the way and they are going to be getting in new fabric end of March and Mm. April. So, and they actually sent me photos and pre-pictures of what's coming, which is really nice. That is so
1: cool. Of course, blios I make them too. And if you want them to be tight, it is a bit complicated with silk brocade because it has no give at all. I mean, of course, it keeps your boobs up, but it's much harder to fit than wool, which have a little bit more elasticity in it. So, but I think it would be look beautiful. And also, I mean, we always think about the really tight French ones with all this tight, tight mm-hmm. sort of wrinkle look. But if you look at Germany or actually Sweden, they tend to be form fitting, but not this really, really, really tight. And so I do a lot of that too, keeping it more to a sort of English, German,
0: Swedish style rather than French, Flemish, Norwegian. Well, the three examples that I have, and there's one Swedish that is maybe, they actually, two of them are Italian and one is French and they're not as tight-laced but, of course, it's a lot of the examples we see are the exaggerated statues. So you don't really know how tight the actual. Yeah, I actually got some uh, somebody was sort of saying, "Oh, but that's fantasy. That's not how a real be all should look
1: when I posted in one of the Facebook groups because I am not shaped like a stick because I mean, right. it was actually made from rectangles and triangles. And yes, it did have the sort of low waist seam, which is discussed whether it is a real thing or not. But I mean, most serious scholars are now on the side that you actually could have a low waist seam on a blio. So, so I mean, I wore it and he said, but you are so curvy. <clears throat> yes, that's the way I look. This is not a wrong with, there's nothing wrong with a blio. It is I who am wrong for this because it looked like it was the 1950s or something because I have this hourglass figure.
0: You can find pictures of heavier people or people that aren't quite the ideal, at least from the 14th century in illuminations. You just have to look for yeah, them. Yeah, that's true. But people have this idea that
1: this is how people looked. Well, not everybody was 5'7 and weighing, I don't know, 40 kilos or something. I mean, especially, <laughs> you know, the, the 12th century and the, and the early 13th century, people looked like sticks because that's part of the Gothic ideal. This is not how people looked. This is how they wanted to
0: look. Fashion history is fun. And one of the things that I sometimes would do is I'd look at a person and say, which period would you be the ideal? Because you can basically find almost always find some period or some culture where you would be considered the most
1: Yeah, I would say if you include post-SEA period, you can do it because... Really, big Mm -hmm. boobs have only been fashionable twice, and that is the late 19th century and the 1950s. That's the only time where big boobs are, you know, the fashion. I'm not talking about what was considered sexy, but what was the fashionable body. Yeah. But otherwise, you can Mm -hmm. probably use anyone. And, I mean, look at early 14th century in in Germany. It's all Codex Maness and, you know, flowy and willowy, Mm -hmm. though in big tent dresses. And then you look at... Italy at the same time, which is the early Renaissance. And people are much fleshier, except that they still have small boobs. But still, they are much fleshier. So you can really see there's two things happening there. One is that it's probably a different ideal in Germany than it is in Italy. And the other one is, of course, that they are actually better at painting in Italy in the (laughs) early Renaissance than what you can see in the late Gothic in Germany.
0: With all your knowledge, do you have any advice for newcomers to the SCA, how they should just start out with their first. Oh,
1: it's so easy now, in a way, because you can find so much information. But as we always tell our students, because there is so much information, you don't really know which is the good one. So that's what's a good thing about having either a local group or, you know, a regional group. And there are Facebook groups for all time periods with good SEA people you know, keeping the discussion in them if you really don't want to make mistakes. But on the other hand, I mean, you shouldn't hit yourself in the head if you make mistakes. And I also say that most people cannot see the difference between a pure silk brocade and something made from an old curtain from the 1940s. As long as the pattern is plausible, as long as the drape is plausible, you wear it and you'll be happy. I have some very nice Italian Renaissance made from old curtains. That's also because I can always, at least in Sweden, I can always say, well, you know, I'm Iam Andersson and I'll do what I want to do.
0: Well, that's one of the positive things with the SEA, that you can start out on a very on a low level. And then you always have to kind of reassure some beginners that just because that person has a fabulous dress doesn't mean that you have to have have one. That person has been doing this for 20 years and is probably was probably even worse than you when you started out. Especially now with all the help people can get. I've seen some beginners with with outfits and make my jaw yeah. drop.
1: And I mean, when we start, <laughs> I remember one of my first gowns, it was in brushed cotton because, you know, brushed cotton looks just like wool. We all know that. It actually does look a lot like wool. Mm-hmm. And also yeah. um, there is qu- plenty of sources for the usage of brushed cotton, but I'm not going to get into that. And of course, I wanted it to be sort of you know gothic fitted dress of the late 14th century because you wanted to be pretty but then i also wanted to have cleavage which they don't have so you know it's too deep cleavage and very tight and two different periods mixed into one i had a lovely wool gown which was sort of 14th century no more yeah early 14th century with lovely ninth century embroidery on because that's what we did then we took oh this is period i'll put it on this you know in sweden we didn't even have historical reenactment in the early 90s the people who knew anything were the sa people and a lot of us didn't know that much
0: Well, it's also good to be able to develop it all. I mean, I think that sometimes, especially when you go out a place like Pinterest, when there's so many photos and so it feels like everything's been done and you'll never be able to get there. But you have to kind of just filter that out and see it as inspiration, but... Don't do it all right Specific away. Specific
1: suggestion, actually somebody's new, is actually to go for the
0: late for say 13th century
1: or early 14th century, because you can make it really beautiful without having, you know, the expensive brocades. And you can make it really beautiful without knowing how to make a fitted garment to yourself. So I would say start with that. Another suggestion is get your headwear. If you wear headwear, you look so much more polished than otherwise. You can wear Basically any, basically anything as long as you have the proper headwear because it gives a better impression of this. So that is more general suggestion or more specific suggestion on this. Another suggestion is you talk about Pinterest, which is good. It is actually an excellent s- collection of sources is a better thing than they call the source. But the problem is, of course, that you never know the quality of the things that is put up there. So you can either try yeah. and find people who are knowledgeable, who's – You know, Pinterest boards you can follow and or you can, you know, you have to learn yourself about all these things. But what I like with people who get photos is that while you have to look at the primary sources to understand, to really know the medieval dress, it is sometimes very hard to visualize how something would look on a real body when you only have like 10th century ivory figurine or something like that. So I really like the opportunity to see a person making a garment from a manuscript from the 11th century, because it is easier to actually see see how it looks then. So there's so many good sources now and so much inspiration.
0: Well, if there's one thing that I recommend with Pinterest is always click and see where that picture came from. My second thing that I'm doing now while I've been waiting with the fabric to get to is After seeing a YouTube film of finally somebody doing a gabled hood or a partlet and frontlet. So I I finally understood how on earth that thing was put together. And I've bought the pattern and such so that I'm gonna try to to make one. But now going and looking at Pinterest and trying to find good sources, you can see that there's a lot of period stuff mixed with 19th century. So that it's very hard to see the difference sometimes. It is. I mean, unless you do it
1: semi-professional as I do, then you actually do get this. But sometimes like one of the dresses I made uh, is actually made from a 17th century copy of a lost 16th century original. Then you go, yeah, how much can we trust this? Then you have to look at pictures because this is a Swedish painting and we don't have a lot of things to compare with. Then I have to look at the Northern German stuff because that's at least the same culture. So But it is difficult and it is hard to find. I try to keep my Pinterest page really, really curated. I want it to be, you know, only good. I really I put a lot of time actually into doing that on just putting it, you know, so all the all the period sources should be good stuff, things that I don't. I use it for my students, so I wanted to be there.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, I use mine just as basically as a scrapbook to to try to remember the stuff. So it's also become almost a little bit of a history book on um, when I was interested in this and that. So they say, oh, there I have when I was trying, I was thinking about maybe making that weird 14th century hood thingy or, oh, that's right. I was just collecting as much heraldic items as possible that I could find.
1: Yeah, I get that, too, especially when I look at my illuminations folder, which is for me because, oh, this is the period when I was making these scrolls. And this is when I was looking for that thing. And I also have some private uh, boards and, you know, special. I have one when I was Baroness, I had this sort of board that was, was keeping suggestions for me and the Baron. So he could go in and look at it. Do you like this? Do you like that? And can I buy this fabric? And things like that. But most of the ones that are, you know, call things like 1200 to 1330 and things like that. They are actually I do them partly for my students so they can actually go and look
0: and trust what they find there. If there's anybody that's listening that doesn't know what Pinterest is, so that it's basically kind of think of a virtual cork board where you can put up pictures. So but instead, so you can basically save pictures from wherever on the web in one place and in, in different subjects.
1: Yeah, and also I, I, I recall when, I'm, when I was sitting with yesterday, I had this thing going, this, the, it links to an article about skating costume through a hundred years, but the image was from the 1870s. So I put it in my 1870s folder. So it's always the picture that is what you, what you sorted out. And sometimes the links are dead. But still, you still have the image. So, yeah, I like Pinterest. I probably should also uh, explain that when I'm talking about my students, I'm talking about the students I have at university who are uh, studying fashion history. I don't have any apprentices or students in the SCA. It's Uppsala University, right? No, Gothenburg. Oh. Well, oh, easy to miss. Nobody's going anywhere these days, so we could just
0: as well be in the same place. I didn't know that Gothenburg University had textile history.
1: Oh, we don't have textile history. This is part of the Hist- Department for Historical Studies. So it's a course in fashion and textiles history that is given by me and another doctor who is an expert on Roman clothing. Oh, OK. And we also have some archaeologists, you know, popping in and giving some classes there. Or rather, this is what happened before I got exhausted and wasn't sick leave. Right now, this course is on hiatus because of me not being there.
0: Is there any time period or fashion that you think is so ugly, you just do not want to do anything with it?
1: Ah, uh, Again, if we're talking about within the SAA period, I would say no. I think there is something good with all of them. I tend to not make much late 14th century, but that's because it's so extremely fashionable. Everybody does it, especially in Sweden, where you have the Battle of Visby. And if people ask in a group about medieval clothing, everybody jumps to and think that you're always talking about the late 14th century. So I tend to stay away from that because it's so extremely popular. But it's not ugly. I mean, it's really pretty. I would do if it if it wasn't such a big fashion thing. Uh, I had a big problem with the 17th century. I'm Same here. I'm trying to out why. <laughs> I think one reason is, of course, because it's so connected to Swedish ultra-nationalist ideas of grandeur. But it's, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm warming up to it, I would say. I'm really warming up to the 17th century. <laughs>
0: 17th century is... it. it it's quite different early, mid and late. Yeah. So, but I mean, I, for me is, I just think a lot of it is ugly, but uh, especially on the men, uh, those, those crotch ribbons Yeah. <laughs> look like they have, it's <laughs> like a little monster crawling in front of their pants. <laughs> um, um, I've actually been doing
1: some, early 17th century now, because Gothenburg is celebrating the 400th university this year.
0: Right, anniversary. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, sorry. Of course, this has been postponed because of Corona. It was supposed to be this year, but it will be celebrated 2023 instead, which is actually rather funny because the 300th anniversary was also postponed. Not because of the Spanish flu or anything like that, but because they hadn't finished building all the stuff they wanted to have for the Jubilee. (laughs) So we will actually be celebrating, you know, the real the hundred years since last time we celebrated this. So I'm actually making I made an early 17th century doublet that can probably also go from, you know, 1599 late in the autumn. But I need to make a much bigger rough for it if I'm going to wear it for 17th century.
0: Yeah, roughs are a whole chapter by themselves, especially if you're in the in the low countries. Yeah, i, I make uh, I, I make my roughs the period
1: way also. When I started doing sixteenth century, I was looking at the Elizabethan costuming page and they have this really nice shortcut cut, cut of how you make them by making them of stacked box pleats. Right. And of course you read the articles about him. There is one in Costum und Waffenkunde. Now there are actually articles you know there's an actual book in english about this but i had to then i had to look through this german speaking journal but the article was in english but the most of the journal is in german and found out that they are actually just gathered they are not stacked box piece. they are gathered and then you have to shape them every time you starch them and yeah i made a few of those and did i like it
0: what is gathered
1: You just, you know, take a gathering, a stitch, a running stitch and gather it together like you do when you put on flounces or something like that. So it has no, the box plates are not there. It's just gathered and then all the shaping is done when it's, you're starching it into these figure eights with pins and needles. Everybody knows that now. I mean, everybody who's into Elizabethan costuming. But, you know, 20 years ago, not so much. And... I mean, I've done it, but it's really, 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 really lots of work, and I really don't like it. I'm actually considering, you know, throwing money at somebody to make me a ruff.
0: Well, I mean, this is people who had servants <laughs> often.
1: Exactly. So I'm thinking about getting myself a servant who will make me a ruff for my 17th century clothing.
0: And this is also something that means to remember when you think, "Oh my God, I, I'm this is such a bad job is it especially the higher quality stuff in later period it was professionals that made it don't beat yourself down if you if you can't make something that a professional did after years and years of apprenticeship that is something we have
1: to think about because at least I don't really know how much it is this, like this now, but I know for a long time, people keep telling, oh, you have to be able to weave your own cloth. I mean, it's a cool thing if you can do it, but even in Scandinavia, in the middle ages, if you were not you know, a farmer living in the middle of nowhere, you actually bought your fabric. Lots of fabric was imported and a lot of fabric was done professionally in Scandinavia. So most people didn't make their own clothes. Linen was more commonly made at home. But a lot of the wool cloth were, I mean, cheaper wool was imported from Poland and Germany. And we had lots of import of the cheaper Flemish ones, but also the expensive Flemish ones. So not everybody made their own cloth and not everybody made their own clothes even. There were tailors
0: for that. Not everybody has to be able to make everything. I like doing it, but you don't have to. And especially now, I mean, the fact that you can basically, if you have the money, you can come into the SCA naked and you will be able to buy everything online and a fairly good quality if you know what you're looking for.
1: Yeah, that's also the thing. Not only is there a much bigger market, you can get almost anything now. It's also a lot of us are actually older and have salaries. We're not students anymore. (laughs) I mean, I've made several medieval shoes. But I don't want to make any more shoes. It hurts my hands, and I'm not particular. I mean, I'm not bad at it, but I don't really like it. So I mean, it's wonderful. Somebody else
0: makes shoes. I can buy them. Been there, done that.
1: Yeah, I think that's what what how I feel about things. I mean, I've been weaving. I was going to make a cloak, but it ended up becoming a blanket for my youngest daughter, uh, based on uh, preserved fabric from uh, from Leksand in Sweden. Oh yeah. Uh, Yeah, and a lot of accidents happened. They moved the the loom during the summer at the place I was doing the weaving, and they tore almost all the threads. So I had to spend like two semesters of actually mostly tying the threads together. And I, well, it was more work than fun. But it ended up being a very nice handwoven blanket for my youngest daughter, who is now soon 17. So, but I mean, I've done that. I've done the weaving. I've done the shoemaking. I'm considering whether I should take up lace making, but
0: I'm not sure. Maybe I don't have to know everything. I suppose it depends a little bit. For my part, apart from embroidery, I do cross stitch embroidery. Yeah, it's a thing to do in front of the TV. But for me, I have a little trouble when if if there's no function. Do you have an, a lace making pillow? Yeah, I'm just going to say
1: you can't see it, but uh, or actually, the listeners can't see it. I'm just pointing upwards there, up
0: there. If, if you paid the postage i could have sent you i have one up on the attic because of it's like oh that's nice to try i don't really know what i would do with it
1: <laughs> well i do make late periods yeah. so of course that would be the reason for it and i actually i also have a colleague slash friend she's in uppsala textile history who actually did her PhD on Renaissance lace and who has offered to teach me how to make you know, a simple lace edging. But I mean, she lives in Stockholm. I live in Gothenburg. There's a pandemic. But it might happen one day.
0: We're not dead yet. There is this type of school in Sweden that's called a folkhögskola, kind of the the people's college. And they have a lot of craft courses and also lots of one-week summer courses. And I usually go... I often take one to break off the library work. And I was looking in the catalog and they did have a course in lace making. If you want to do that for a week.
1: That would be a good thing. Also, a lot of people are doing um, needle lace now. Yeah. You can find it. Both you have the modern making or of course giving instructions. And I got to know this German woman through a Facebook group who does this awesome needle lace and mistress Leah in Aros makes needle lace and she actually had a course on needle lace in uh, well the last non-online university but it was at the same time as I was teaching about cotton so it probably I couldn't go there anywhere but I mean it might happen one day the thing is as you say you have to have a need for it and I like the 16th century I've done a lot of 16th century but somehow I tend to gravitate towards 1300 and then you don't need a lace
0: I mean how many dresses do you need one of the reasons I'm looking at other stuff uh, apart from the fact that it becomes that well I need another another dress but I have like w- this one court dress it was mostly for the fabric it's not that well made and I want to make something else and then I can make because you can have something like one period that you're com that's comfortable during the day in the event, and then you can have something completely ridiculous and fabulous during court if you have enough luggage space.
1: This is a problem. I mean, I have garb everywhere. I, I have boxes under the um, mine my husband's bed. That's where I keep my regency stuff, my early 19th century stuff, and late 18th century stuff. Uh, so that's under the bed then i have a chest a big chest that i usually have in my pavilion which has mixed garb different periods and then i have four of the largest ikea tubs in one of the closets the, the walking closet and then i have two of them on top on the cupboard in the living room i have too much garb i have just too much garb but i mean i love making it i really really do love making it well have you thought of trying to sell some of it off I have sold some of it off the things I wear and I have now is things that I think that I might like to wear again. Because, you know, as I, I tend to do periods in, I say, you know, I have arthritis and yeah. this illness comes in flares. Well, I always say the time periods comes in flares too. I have this, oh my God, the 15th century is the best thing. And then you go on with that and you do that but it might come back again. Like this summer I made 12th century. I hadn't made any 12th century for eight years or something. I did have 12th century clothes that I made 20 years ago that I can still wear. And I thought, yeah, why not make new 12th century? And it's so nice to just be able to unpack the things and have them. But I have sold off quite a lot actually also. But you know, if you love making it, that's also why I started making a lot of it, almost all of it by hand now because it takes less time. So I get more sewing time per, you know, square feet of things I have to store.
0: People shouldn't be afraid of hand sewing. It's actually easier to do. I haven't managed to figure out thimbles yet, but I found a good uh, YouTube uh, channel. Her name's Abby, and she started out doing 18th century but she has and Victorian but she has a very good tutorial on hand sewing and how to use a thimble correctly I wish I could learn
1: to I can't learn I've tried I can't get into the thimble thing I started making I mean really got into hand sewing when I made my fall costume 20 years ago because those are supposed to be made all by hand and since then I have some periods I make wholly by hand some things like uh, the the garb that Mons and I wore for the investiture as Baron and Baroness. It was this sort of metallic brocade. If If you look at it, it will start unraveling. So that fabric was zigzagged into the edge.
0: But it was magnificent.
1: It was. I put Mons by the sewing machine and said Sig sag, sag these
0: pieces. I will do the rest, but you will zig sag these pieces. And this was a barony of Gotvik. Yes. In Gothenburg in Sweden. Or in the Principality of Nordmark. We've been talking for a while here. and I think maybe we should start thinking about wrapping it up if that's okay. Yeah.
1: You know, I never stop talking. If you just have the ch- I just have the chance I'll just go on.
0: I have one more question for you. What is your favorite tool?
1: If I say two, if I say linen thread and wax, could that be considered as one, you know, waxed linen thread? Sure,
0: no problem.
1: It is the best. That's what I learned from making my fall costume. I mean, it's like, I don't know, there's, there are things that are better than, than, you know, sewing with waxed linen thread, but none of them are, you know, family friendly. It's the best.
0: Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations with Creative Anachronists. Would you like to join me in a conversation? Or do you have any questions? You can use the voice message function in Anchor. You can email me at creativeconverse one word ends with an S at gmail.com or you can message me via the Facebook page. Until next time, bye for now.